Before we get started, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters and remind listeners that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. And another way to help us is to recommend Big Biology to a friend or family member, or just spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We want to share these ideas with as many people as we can, and growing our audience will ensure that Big Biology episodes keep coming. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and to comment on and rate our show. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic, just let us know. You can get in touch with us on our social media pages or through the website. And now, here's the show. From the hagfish slime we discussed in episode 44 with Doug Fudge, to the diversity of animal genital morphology with Patty Brennan, which we talked about on episode 11, evolutionary biologists love to think about the unfamiliar and the wild. Natural selection and other forces obviously play roles in evolution, but humans too have generated enormous diversity within and among species. For instance, the first several chapters of Darwin's Origin of Species focus on the domesticated pigeon. In the 1800s, breeders had produced all sorts of sizes, shapes, and colors of pigeons through active selection for favorable or just plain weird traits. And Darwin's observations on that diversification led to his early insights about evolution. Pigeons aside, many species have become integral to the human way of life, largely because we collectively had selected for things we want like strange feathers on pigeons, or bigger, faster horses, or softer, friendlier cats. Whoa, whoa, friendly cats? That's an evolutionary oxymoron. Domestication of these and other species, especially those we use for food, involves some of the same processes by which natural populations evolve. The general term for human-caused evolution is artificial selection. And artificial selection has arguably been as important to us as the kinds of natural and sexual selection that have led to slimier hagfish and longer, spikier duck penises. And there's not very many shows on which you can say the phrase longer, spikier duck penises. Today's guest, NYU professor of biology Michael Perugin, studies the evolution of domesticated crops, focusing particularly on rice. His studies leverage fundamental evolutionary biology to understand how human activities and human desires have shaped the traits of the major food crops that sustain us. Perugin started studying the genetics of crops as a way to indulge his love for science and to have a positive impact on his home country of the Philippines. His later work shifted to the evolution of wild plants, but after a visit to the International Rice Institute, he became fascinated by domestication as an evolutionary process. By combining genomic analysis with data from the archaeological record, Michael has come to some surprising conclusions. For example, shattering, which is the tendency of grains to fall off the stem when handled, was thought to have become eliminated quite rapidly by farmers seeking to keep as much of the crop as they could. However, Michael's evolutionary analyses show that this trait evolved much more slowly, playing out over thousands of generations and pushed along by very weak selection. It wasn't so much that farmers were selecting for non-shattering, but instead, non-shattering phenotypes were more likely to be planted, as the shattering kind were less likely to make it into the next year's seed stock. Another of Michael's interest is interspecific hybridization, much like the Grant's Darwin's finches we discussed in episode 28, this process has been important to the success of apples to date palms. It seems that altogether new and important plant traits arise when two related species interbreed. The majority of the show today focuses on rice, including his work with the International Rice Genome Sequencing Project, which aims to pull together high-quality reference genomes for most of the world's domesticated and wild varieties. Michael hopes that this bank of genomic information will provide us with the tools to start tweaking our crops to accommodate a growing population in the face of climate change, 
ultimately producing a green super rice. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology. Michael, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for, for joining us. Um, we've started out recently asking our guests just about their paths into science. So if you could just give us a, a quick overview of, you know, how, how did you get into science? How did you get interested in crop domestication and, and, and that kind of thing? So I've, I've always been interested in science as a kid. I'm originally from the Philippines. I grew up in the Philippines. Um, and, and growing up, for some reason, which is very rare, for a Filipino kid, I got interested in science. And I also got interested in journalism and writing. I, those were my twin interests growing up. And when I got to college, I essentially explored both of them. I did a chemistry degree. I was interested in all sciences and I couldn't figure out what to do. So of course, the, the, the median for all sciences seemed to be chemistry. I don't know why. So I ended up in chemistry. At uh, the same time, I was uh, working in the college paper as a freelance writer. Um, and, uh, you know, during my college days, actually, I was offered a, a position during my junior year to leave my studies and become a full-time journalist. But I turned that down and instead stick, stick, stuck with science. Then I went on to, uh, I went on to chemistry uh, to do kind of bioinorganic chemistry at Columbia University. Um, but then I, I, I realized I, I actually don't like chemistry. What am I doing here? <laughs> I actually like biology. Biology is what I wanted to do. Uh, and in the mid-80s, in the mid or late 80s when I was in graduate school, um, you know, plant biotechnology was kind of a very interesting field coming up. And I, I, had, I still had this idea that I was going to go back to the Philippines after my graduate work. So I said, well, plant biotechnology, that sounds, uh, you know, that sounds like something that would be useful. Um, and so I, I then went to the University of Georgia um, to get a Ph.D., uh, in botany, um, working for Sue Wessler, a geneticist. Uh, at that time, I did realize what I really wanted to be was a geneticist. So I ended up in a genetics lab. Um, and then there, at the University of Georgia, there was a good group, as you, as you probably know, of both evolutionary, uh, evolutionary geneticists and ecologists. And so by kind of by osmosis, I, I, I began to gravitate towards those areas. I was still doing my, like my day job was still a hardcore molecular geneticist. But I, you know... I got really interested in evolutionary biology and I realized that's really what I wanted to do. So I ended up with a dissertation that was kind of half molecular genetics, half molecular evolution. Uh, and then, you know, from there, I did a postdoc in San Diego uh, in uh, Plant Evo Devo. And then I got my first faculty position at NC State for 10 years. And then I moved to NYU um, 15 years ago. So that's how, that's how I got there. Well, that sounds like a really great mix of past topics to sort of support the things that you do now. Um, I want to circle way, way back to when you were a kid in the Philippines. Um, I'm, I'm interested in just the sort of sociology of this. So, so why, why is it that some kids become really attracted to science at an early age? Um, I, I was kind of the same way, and I, I can't really put a finger on, on why that was. But for you, do you recall what it was that set you on that path? You know, that's, that's, that's an interesting question, and I... I really don't know. Reading had a lot to do with it. Um, growing up in the Philippines, there actually weren't a lot of libraries and a lot of books. And there were a few libraries I managed to stumble onto. And for some reason, I started to gravitate towards astronomy um, books. You know, I just was fascinated by it. So I just, I, I just started to read everything. Um, 
And one of the things that was interesting was next to my elementary school growing up was um, what was, was called the science complex in Manila, where they had the laboratories of what was then the national, um, I, I forgot, it's, it's, it's the science ministry, actually. And then the Bureau of Mines was there. And then the laboratories of the National Museum was there. And I would actually sneak out from classes in elementary school and just like wander this complex, just, I don't know what, what just doing that. Hmm. And one thing led to another and I just kept on getting interested in science. Yeah. Wow. Where did the interest in, in plant domestication, when did that start? What was the spark there? That, that's also convoluted. When I went to get my PhD in plant biology and botany, it was to work, it was actually to work on rice, although I ended up working on maize. Because again, the idea was, let's do something that might be useful that I can go back to the Philippines and, and, and do something of interest. And working on maize was interesting because um, there, there was always this riddle about the evolution of maize and the origin of maize um, that took some time to decipher. Because as you might know, maize looks very different from its wild ancestor, Tiosinte. And so people, there was a lot of theories about how this was coming about, maybe transposable elements, maybe, you know, whatever. Um, and so, so that actually sparked my interest in understanding plant evolution in general, but then also crop evolution and domestication specifically. Um, and, and then when I started, you know, my own laboratory, actually, I wasn't working on domesticated species. I started working on Arabidopsis, the model plant system, to look at questions about population genetics and evolutionary ecology there. And also I was working on the Hawaiian silver swords in, in Hawaii, looking at adaptive radiations. So not really any crop species. But then after about five years, I started to revisit that interest, just looking uh, at, at it again. And I started to, you know, come to accept that studying crops might tell us something about how evolution actually proceeds. And then I'll tell you the side thing that, was, that happened with rice was that it was, I think it was in 2001. And I'm from the Philippines. I'm here in North Carolina. And I wanted an excuse to go back to the Philippines. And I know the International Rice Research Institute was in the Philippines. I said, I'm going to go visit the International Rice Research Institute. And that, that actually was, was also part of it. I said, I'll go there and visit a little bit. And that kind of started my journey towards looking at rice more, uh, more closely. Well, that's good. I mean, it makes sense. You go back to the Philippines, visit family and whatever it might be. But then there's also the practical positive side of, you know, yeah. an applied output to your work. Everybody's happy. <laughs> yes, everybody says win-win. So let's um let's jump into this really well written. I love this 2019 review in Current Biology. Um, you know we're not going to have time. You you say that there's a thousand to twenty five hundred simian fully domesticated plant species in somewhere between 120 and 160 different families. So we won't get to that diversity, but let's try to touch on a couple of different examples. Um, we want to save a lot of time towards the end of the show today to talk about rice. So if possible, let's not talk about rice so we can talk a lot more about rice later. Um, but what I, what I thought was neat about this paper, besides just it's, it's so well written, is that you, know, you divide plant domestication into a couple of four different categories. In general, domestication was a protracted process. Uh, unconscious versus conscious selection played a prominent role. Intraspecific hybridization was really important. And one of our favorite topics that similar genes across multiple species 
underlie parallel convergent evolution. So let's try to go through each one of those in turn. So, so running back to this idea of domestication as a protracted process, that was kind of surprising to me. I mean, you know, it's been all the rage in a little while that evolution can happen a lot faster than we thought. But in general, for, for crops, it's it's taken a long time. Yeah, so, so that's one. But by the way, all of these were, were motivated in part because I think in the last 10 to 15 years, there really has been an explosion of both data and analysis, both on the genetic side and on the archaeological side that, 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 that informed all of this. The protracted process is, a, is, a, is, is interesting because, yeah, I also thought the idea was crops evolved really quickly, right? You, 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 know, you apply strong selection and voila, you have a crop evolve before your very eyes. Um, but it turns out that for many species, that probably is not the case because if you look at several key traits to domestication, for example, in plants, in cereal crops, such as rice and maize and barley and wheat, um, non-shattering is a key trait, the ability of the seed to remain on the plant when you harvest it. Obviously, in, the, in nature, the, the plant wants to disperse its seed. In, in, in an agricultural setting, you don't want the seed to be dispersed. The selection is not to disperse the seed. That trait itself, which can be traced in the archaeological record, shows that for many cereal crops, it took several thousand years for this trait to go to fixation. So it wasn't like this thing where, you know, within... Within a few generations, we have a fully fledged crop, but it 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 probably took several thousand generations. Uh, and when you think about it now, it it, it seems it, it may seem obvious, but it wasn't obvious to many of the early workers in this field. And several um, even early models suggested that crops could evolve as short as fifty to hundred years. We're not we're not seeing that in the archaeological record. So so if you had to sort of identify the selection pressure for this non shattering evolution of this non-shattering phenotype. I mean, there's a couple of different things you could imagine, right? That that it has to do with people, you know, choosing plants or individuals that, that retain their seeds or something much more unconscious than that. So do you think it was unconscious selection or was it people selecting for it? I think it was unconscious selection. But the idea for cereal crops, at least, though the, you know, your rice, your wheat, your barley, is that it was the introduction of the sickle that developed non-shattering because... When you harvested with, an, with a sickle, essentially the, the act of harvesting, uh, if you have shattering seed, they're going to fall while you're harvesting. Now, imagine that you had a, a field in, there, in which there were some plants that were not shattering. You, you harvested it with a sickle and they didn't shatter. It wasn't that I was selecting them, but they were the ones that I got to bring home and they were the ones that I got to, to plant. And so it was unconscious selection and that's the idea. And it turns out that many of the traits that we think of associated with crops, not all, but many of them may have been the result of unconscious selection. And that's also why the, the process may have been so protracted. You know, it wasn't like people were saying, aha, I want to choose this or that. No, it was just the act of planting. It was the act of harvesting that created the new selection pressure uh, for this organism. Let me ask too, you also had some interesting things to say about effective population sizes and some of these um, populations of crop plants, and it sounded like the the population sizes were sometimes quite small during the process of domestication. And and I'm wondering, does that, you know, do those small population sizes sort of inhibit this the ability of selection to to drive these traits in the direction, you know, either consciously or unconsciously that led to domestication? And then the related question is that you, you had this super interesting observation that 
it appears that the the effective population sizes sometimes began to decline even well before domestication. So how how is that possible? Well, so so we think that on, on the second part on and that that came as a surprise to us as well, by the way. Um, and and that's based on genomic data. But but again, what we think was happening was even before you began to see in the archaeological record the domesticate. Um, people were beginning to start to, you know, plant them and cultivate them. So there was this long period. So cultivation is basically a prerequisite in crops to domestication. It was the process of planting something and harvesting something that creates this new ecological pressure on the plant to evolve in a certain uh, direction. But that, we think, had now occurred over a long period of time, even before you begin to see the traits uh, the archaeological record. So this would have been people sort of managing wild populations in some way and exploiting. Yeah, they were managing. And also, you know, it, it's not a binary, you know, we're planters, we're foragers. There might, there, there could have been a, a, an in-between period when human humans had, uh, were trying to experiment with different types of behavioral ecologies. So we think that it occurred over a long period of time. The effective population size uh, thing is, is, is also actually under debate right now. Um, it has always been thought that the process of domesticated created a bottleneck um, in the domesticate so that the effective population size was low and therefore also variation, which is what we observe for most animal domesticated plants, is also low compared to its wild ancestor. And, and, and I think this is still considered the accepted idea but now there are some data that tends to suggest that the reduction in effective population size has occurred over, also over a long period of time. So it's not, it might not have been the domestication process itself that created the bottleneck, but over time, um, even post-domestication, you're getting this bottleneck. Even in, uh, and I'm not talking about because you were breeding the planet, it's because, or even if it's just traditional societies. Um, and, and there's data from ancient DNA work in sorghum that suggested that, although it's still under debate. Uh, and there are colleagues of mine in the United Kingdom that are trying to um, think about this model by which effective population size has a more gradual decrease over time that's going on. But the, the, the question of whether then that affects our ability to select, it certainly affects modern breeders, right? Uh, one of the things that modern breeders are looking for is variation in in many cases, they're not finding any variation in their crop uh, because of this bottleneck effect that's occurred during the domestication process. And we never quite put a number on these effective population sizes. So how, how small were they? Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine, you know, is it hun just hundreds of plants that are the origins of I these? I think it was or? the low thousands. It might be the low thousands. Okay, yeah. that's still, that's pretty small. So it's a, it's a sort of a natural segue. I mean, these other mechanisms to generate variation that otherwise would have been eliminated when the populations got tiny. You, one of your other points is interspecific hybridization. Um, how does that work? I mean, it seems to have been common among many different type, types of crops. So what, what's your favorite example there? Right. And, and, and that, that's the other thing that has occurred recently is the, the role that interspecific hybridization is played in the evolution of these crops. So one of our, our the favorite examples, which my lab also works on, is date palms. So date palms are a perennial tree crop. They grow in the Middle East. They probably originated somewhere around the Gulf. Um, and then they started to spread um, westwards, maybe about starting about 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, uh, into North Africa. And, and what we found to our surprise, we had always been really fast 
actually confused was the word, that <laughs> we thought that the date bombs come from the Middle East and then spread to North Africa. But then when you look at the actual level of molecular diversity, it's higher in North Africa than in the Middle East, which goes across all our ideas about founder events and you know uh, isolation by distance and so on. And, 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 and then what my postdoc found out several years ago was what happened was when it moved to um, North Africa, was it hybridized with a wild palm species that today is found in the island of Crete, Phoenix theophrasty. And that hybridization event, the, the, the genomes of date palms in North Africa all have a component from this other wild species. And that also, we think, explains many, but not all, of the increased diversity of the North African date bombs. So the date bombs have done that. But then when you look at all of the other crop species, you, you see that happening. We see that in rice. We see that in the citrus crops. We see that in apples. I mean, the story of apple domestication is really a story of hybridization as it's marched its way from Central Asia into Europe. I think it had two bouts of hybridization. So that our modern apple is really hybrid between the European crab apple and the species that was growing in Kazakhstan. And then in, in, but in animals, it, it's also the same picture that has been seen. So, you know, you see, you see it several times. You're beginning to say, ah, oh, this is something's going on here. Uh, at least we're now documenting that this is happening. The challenge now is to try to understand, well, what does this mean? Is it causing the plants to be, or the, 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 the livestock to be more adaptive? To local environments, for example, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Do you do we know anything about that? I mean, I find it really compelling, given what what and how hybridization happens in plants versus how it happens in animals. That in both very different organism groups, it, it is had is it has been so important. So in plants, is there any generality to the? Do we know enough about how hybridization has led to domestication? No, we, we, we still don't. And it's still an open question that I hope others can also jump into the fray and, and, and try to solve. Yeah. What, what's your best guess then? Can I put you on the spot? What's your best guess about how this might happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a pan-selectionist. Yeah, of course it helped. <laughs> <laughs> it helped at local adaptation. Uh, I shouldn't say I'm a pan-selectionist too loud, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> too late. But... but, but it, that's, that's the hypothesis we are trying to test. So, so I think the field right now is we're documenting these cases. And the next clear step is then to ask the question, has these hybridization events contributed to local adaptation or different paths of adaptation? Uh, and that, I think, I, think, I think within five years, we're going to know that. on to this other point that you make in the, the current biology paper that I found just particularly fascinating and that's that um, sort of s that that similar genetic changes in different domesticated crops underlie uh, sort of similar phenotypic changes that we see in, in those crops so that I don't know that, that that's kind of amazing to me so can, can you just unpack that so what you know loci are we talking about what traits show convergent evolution and what what's driven that convergence? Well, so in, in crops, you see it in different types of traits, like in the same gene. And I'll, I'll mention uh, two uh, in particular. So one thing that the, in, in, in some societies, they like sticky foods, right? So the Japanese, especially the Koreans, they like rice sticky, but they actually have sticky barley, uh, a whole range. Now, now, of course, I blank out sticky corn um, and, and others that, that are accepted in their culture. It turns out 
that there are about four or five species that are that have a sticky phenotype as a variation within their group. And it's the same gene that is mutated. It's the waxy gene, which is involved in amylose biosynthesis. And it makes sense if you know, of course, how starch is made in, in, in a seed, that that's the one gene you want to hit on. Although, why didn't you hit on the regulatory, uh, the transcription factor for that gene, right? It's, it's always that enzyme that's being hit. Okay, so that's one example. And, and are there similar molecular changes in that enzyme locus? No, sometimes it's a transposable element, sometimes it's a splice donor mutation, sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's different types of mutations. Uh, the other is, is color, fruit color, right? Um, you know, red and green apples, uh, it, it, and, and there's a lot of red-green variation in fruits, as you probably know. It, I'll tell you a story about, about date palms again is, you know, we were able to find this because dates actually come in in red and yellow. They're yet red dates and yellow dates. And when we had sequenced the date palm genome in, you know, five, six years ago, and we're working on looking at diversity in date palms, uh, which we published in Nature Communications, we were wondering, well, what is driving this color difference in, in date palm fruits? And my postdoc at that time said, well, you know, in oil palm, um, they also have dark and light fruits, and they've cloned the gene for this. It's called the Varesage gene. It's a MIB transcription factor. And, but, but you know what? But oil palm and date palm are 30 million years apart. And I said, yeah, well, you know, that's interesting. He then went looking for the homologue, and lo and behold, it's the, it's the ortholog of the oil palm gene that was mutated as well. And then when we started looking to the literature, and of course, of course, this is obvious. It's the same gene that's giving you red and yellow grapes. It's the same gene that's giving you red and light-colored chocolate. I didn't know chocolate fruit was colored, but it is. It's also in peaches, uh, and it's also in apples. It's the same. It's either the ortholog or the homolog of that gene. Now, the question is, why is it those specific genes? Like, to get color differences, there's a whole bunch of genes you can change. You can, you know, this is the transcription factor, but you could change the enzyme that's doing the color or another transcription factor, but it's always that transcription factor. And actually, I don't know if we know why. Why is it that in certain cases, you have a pathway that if you mutate any part of the pathway, you get this phenotype, but yet it's only one part of the pathway you keep on doing over and over again. There, there, there's some theories about that, but I don't find any of them compelling. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, I just don't think we know. Well, along these lines, but even broader and maybe spookier, um, you talk in that paper about Vavilov and the genetic law of homologous series of variation, this domestication syndrome idea. So single genes and coloration is cool, but this is even bigger and broader. Do you want to talk about what that is? And Yeah, so, so domestication syndromes are just a, a suite of, of traits that scientists have observed to all go together in domesticated species. So for cereal crops, it's usually uh, non-shattering, it's, it's upright growth, uh, it's loss of uh, an on for seed dispersals. Uh, in, in, in animals, it's the same thing, by the way. It's, you know, it's a change in the cranial morphology, it's tameness, um, you know, other, other, other traits that seem to go together. And these have been called the domestication syndromes. Now, Vavilov did use the similarity in characters he sees between different species to form what he calls law of homologous variation. And he says, look, if one species, you see um, variation within that species in a particular trait, chances are, if you look at other species, it's also that trait you're going to see variation in. And 
and now we see based on our the, the, this finding that we're beginning to see that it's the same gene over and over again that's being mutated. It, it gives a genetic underpinning to what Favilov observed at the phenotypic level. Now, why are these traits in particular always found together? Um, some of it might be correlated evolution. So in, at least in, in animals, there's a suggestion that the changes in the morphology of many mammalian species that have been domesticated is correlated due to a selection on tameness. Um, when there was a selection on tameness, and this is based on the famous um, fox experiment in, in Siberia. The silver foxes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the silver foxes, where they selected on tameness, they started to get uh, floppy ears and, you know, a curly tail and differences in coloration. They were not selecting for those. They were selecting for tameness. And so there's one suggestion that this is just correlated evolution. The other suggestion, though, uh, which I actually favor, especially in plants, is that for all of these plants, they're, they're experiencing essentially the same selective pressure. You're putting them in a farm, and every farm, although each farm is different in its own way, there are still certain things that you all do in a farm. You all plant in a certain way, you all harvest in a certain way, and, and, and things like that. And so it's these traits that are go together because they have the same selective pressures. I, I still find that really compelling, though. I mean, that you have so much regulatory complexity underlying all of this, and you put them in a similar but not identical environment, and somehow these very different evolutionary lineages all find the same kind of phenotypic solution. I mean, that's it's really pretty amazing that there's that much almost predestination. <laughs> you know, but and, and, and so this is what I, this is one of the reasons why I think studying domestication, domestic crops, may tell us something about the in general about evolution, right? Um, because here we we have these examples um, that we can go to and the geneticists have managed to find. And now can we then step back away from domesticated species and look at the broader natural world and ask, are we seeing the same thing uh, across wild species? So, so if we ask that question in the context of this fruit color change, I mean, you could imagine ecological circumstances, you know, preferences by the, the thing, the animals that are feeding on the fruits that might drive shifts in color. So. Do you see that in wild species that are not domesticated at all? And, and, and are the same loci involved? No, I don't know about the same loci involved because I'm not sure there have been many studies of the genetic basis of these traits in wild species um, as much. Everybody's been so focused on the domesticated species for these types of work. Um, I, but if I were to bet, yes, it would be the same gene uh, that, that was involved. Um, the, the ecology, it, you know... Uh, again, it's we've been so focused on domestication. We haven't. We, we're only now taking the time to understand the uh, the ecology behind food color variation in the wild, uh, and we're looking at this in our date uh, because of our date palm work. Because this red yellow color polymorphism is also found in other species of wild palms, and so we're we're starting. To, well, why is that there? Why why are these wild species? Uh, showing these uh, color polymorphisms, and there are actually people, obviously, are looking at this on on uh, you know how bats respond to different color fruits, or how or how um, birds respond to different colored fruits. Uh, but that's a, a vast literature that I think we need to to explore some more. Yeah. Before we move on to rice, um, let's circle back to the last one that we just briefly brought up, and then then moved away from um, this conscious versus unconscious distinction. Um, I do find it surprising and a little ironic that 
you know, our intention to domesticate isn't as good as these accidents of using sickles and ending up with showering. I mean, that's just somehow uh, entertaining in a way. But does it matter? I mean, it, is it is it consequential whether conscious or unconscious was it, it was important? Oh, we're almost going to get into philosophy here. Um, well, there, I think this is your question. You, you you phrased this in a way in the paper, so I thought you might have some ideas yeah, about it. Yeah, no. So, okay, so there's several there, there's several layers here to unpack. Um, but one of them is Darwin himself made a distinction between what he called methodical selection and unconscious selection, right? And methodical selection, or what we would think of as conscious selection, is here I am, and I'm saying, I really want red fruit, and I am going to consciously choose red fruit and plant the seed from red fruit uh, that, you know, I have a, con- I have a, I have a goal in mind while unconscious selection is, I, it just happens to be living on a farm. Uh, you know, I, I'm harvesting it with a, a, a harvest knife. I wasn't saying I want to select for non shattering seed. It's just, uh, it's just that there, there's also a history of people looking down, or when I say people, I say our colleagues in evolutionary biology who look down on the study of domesticated species as somehow really not going to be informative in trying to understand evolution <laughs> as a whole. And, and you know, I, I, I should say that this is true. This went all the way back to Darwin, right? Wallace. Oh, sure, Wallace sure. Didn't yeah, like I'm, I'm laughing because I, I experienced this all the time working on house sparrows. You know, that doesn't count. That's, a, that's an invasive species, yeah. right? That, yeah, yeah. somehow that doesn't count. And, 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 you know, Wallace famously, at the beginning at least, basically mar- tried to marginalize Darwin's use of domesticated species and artificial selection in his studies on selection and so on. Um, I come at it from a different point of view. You know, I, I, I come from it that we are homo sapiens. You know, we're this animal and this is one of our traits. We use cognition, right? So I actually don't like this division between artificial and natural selection. Because I I think what it does is it kind of tries to separate humans from the rest of biology. Now, that's not to say that cognition and consciousness is somehow not important. Of course it is. It's something special that we do have. But when it comes to, and, and, and where it's really tied in with domestication is the idea that what we see in domesticated species have been shaped largely by conscious selection is one of the criticisms of use of, of the use of domesticated species to try to get us to understand how evolution works. And one of the things that's emerged though is that not all, obviously, but many of the traits that we associate with domestication may have arrived by unconscious selection. So more, uh, more closer to natural selection uh, than than we would perceive, um, and and how we deal with conscious selection is a whole other thing that I'm I'm, I'm, I'm tr- I really am trying to understand what that means. <laughs> I, I I kind of understand that it may make some parts of domestication unique, different from what we would expect in the natural world. But maybe not. I don't know. But but it also. I mean, I could I could see too that if conscious selection wasn't as effective, then our efforts to consciously select in the future, you know, presumably it's not going to be as effective. I mean, that's important. And figuring out a way around that 
is practically important. I mean, what the solutions are is going to be different for every every system. But I mean, I could see that side of it. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, but by the way, just, just you know, domestication does not only happen in humans, right? Insects, ants, termites, and beetles have domesticated fungi. And I, I, I'm fascinated with this thought experiment. When the ant is going and taking this fungal cultivar and planting it, is that a conscious act? <laughs> are the ants thinking, I'm going to plant this Depends plant? Depends on how panpsychic you are. I mean, even the fungus is wanting to you be there. You have to get into the ant umwelt. I, I know, but, but, but it, it, in other words, is this distinction between conscious and unconscious selection something we also need to apply to other examples? So, so I have... Two other little follow-ups here that, that build on this unconscious and conscious distinction. Um, one of them is about just selection, the strength of selection pressures that might arise from unconscious versus conscious. And if, if more of this selection is unconscious, does that explain perhaps the very slow evolution? Because I might imagine that if it was conscious and people are making you know very deliberate choices about what gets planted, you could imagine incredibly strong selection pressures you know, in a few generations. So, oh, yeah. No, and, and, and you're right there. Yeah, the unconscious, unco we, we've actually measured the strength of selection uh, on many of these traits using the archaeological record. There's ways to, to, to measure the rate of evolution. And from there, you can measure the strength of selection. And the numbers we're getting are actually in the range of natural selection for many of these traits we think are under unconscious selection, like uh, seed, uh, seed size and, and unshattering and so on. But you are right. If I'm going to decide I'm going to select for red fruit, your selection strength is going to be Bam, it's a truncated, it's a truncation selection, right? You're keeping only the red fruit and you're throwing away the yellow fruit. It's, you know, two generations you have it. Right. Uh, my, my other follow-up is even perhaps more tangential, and that's um, thinking about the botany of desire, Michael Pollan's book, um, which I read read some years ago. And, and he has this really interesting idea that, you know, we, we have exploited a number of different plants for different purposes, but that at the same time, they're exploiting us and causing humans to evolve. What do you, what do you think about that, that idea? Oh, that, that's a really fascinating idea. And it goes back to others, uh, such as David Rindos in the 80s. Um, and and we, we've always looked at domestication through the lens of humans. It, first of all, what domestication really is, is an evolution, a co-evolutionary interaction that's based on a mutualism between these two species, right? Um, it's a strange kind of mutualism, but it's a mutualism. And we've always looked at what humans are doing. And less attention has been paid on the fact that this is a reciprocal interaction, that the plant or the animal is also evolving in a way to be more desirable to humans or more useful to humans, because those are the ones that are going to be carried on to the next generation. They found a way to exploit our sensory biases or our nutritional yes. needs. Or... Yeah, it, it, it makes us, you know, it, you like this pretty color? I'm going to evolve this pretty color for you. Or this is this, 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 this scent for you. Or, uh, well, that's very anthropomorphic. They're not evolving. But, but you know, the list of variants, the variants that we find most desirable are the ones that are going to be carried on to the next generation. And so the, the domesticate, the crop or the livestock or the pet, the variants that, that we want to keep in the next generation, they might also be driving our behavior into what, how we're selecting and what we're selecting. Okay, shall we talk rice? Let's talk rice. Let's talk rice. Another really cool paper in Nature Reviews Genetics um, just a little while ago 
let's talk a little bit about the basics of rice, how many people eat it, all of that uh, good stuff. Um, and I want to spend a bunch of time on green super rice. I think that, you know, it's it's neat to sort of juxtapose what we've been talking about with domestication generally, modern genomic efforts to understand these organisms and marrying them to be able to, you know, feed the world in the face of climate change. But but let's start with the basics. How many people eat rice? Tell us about its basic domestication history and its biggest challenges to viability as a crop. Yeah. So rice is the largest food crop in the world. Uh, and the reason I can say that is although corn is grown more, a lot of corn is for industrial uses. Rice is purely for food. There's no other real use for rice except as a food crop. Um, and uh, it, it depends on who you talk to. It's between a third to half of the world's population uses rice as a staple crop. I mean, if you think of China and India together in itself, um, if you think of East and Southeast and South Asia, where rice is the dominant uh, staple, that's a huge chunk of the world's population. Um, so, it, but, but, but it's, you know, aside from that, obviously it's spread to the Americas. It's spread through Europe, uh, Southern Europe. It's used quite heavily. Portugal is a big rice eater. Uh, so it's, it's, it's spread through every continent except Antarctica, unless the Antarctic station has rice in its meals, which probably has. <laughs> a little more climate change. And we'll, yeah. Um, so um, if you had to say something about the sort of overall trajectory of rice domestication, uh, how, how did that happen and what, what species did it come from? Yeah, so there, there's, still, there's still a big debate on the origin of rice, which we think we've solved, but our, some of our colleagues don't think that we've solved it. Um, so it, it's clear that archaeologically, the earliest examples of domesticated rice showed up in the Yangtze Valley in China about 9,000 years ago. Okay. Um, oh, before I, I, I should backtrack, actually rice has several different genetically distinct groups that are considered subspecies. And the two biggest ones is Japonica rice. And if you think of sushi rice or the rice that the Japanese eat, that's Japonica rice. The rice that we also grow in the United States is Japonica rice. Indica rice is one that originated in uh, in South in, in India, uh, and it's actually the more dominant subspecies now because it's 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 a higher yielding group of rice. Um, and it used to be thought that rice evolved or were domesticated twice, uh, one in China, one in India. Um, but if you look at the archaeological record, starting about 9,000 years ago, you begin to see real domesticated rice uh, in, in China. In India, you see it, but you see it spottily until about 4,500 years ago. And what seems to have happened is uh, rice was domesticated in China first, and that gave rice to Japonica rice, and it started to spread in Asia. And then starting about 4,500 years ago, we think Japonica rice made it to India. And in India, what they were doing, they were planting something. Uh, and the ancestor, by the way, is this, is this species called Oryza rufipogon uh, that grows all over South Asia and Southeast Asia and to East Asia. Um, and they were doing something with Oryza rufipogon. Maybe they were starting to plant or they were starting to plant it. Maybe it was starting to be domesticated. But when Japonica came, whatever was happening in India domest uh, hybridized with Japonica. And Japonica essentially was uh, provided the domestication alleles to indica. So all of the, the genes for non-shattering, the genes for white color, the genes for, you know, removed on, came from Japonica by this hybridization. And that gave rise to indica, which then spread. So sort of rapid integration of these key domestication alleles. Huh? Right. Yeah. So we think that that's, you know, that's the story of how rice evolved. We still have colleagues who question that. Um, 
we think for us are based on both archaeological data and also on our population genomic analysis. That that's pretty much a settled question. And and just so we can be clear, so if you look at the characteristics of the grains of Ariza the the wild relative versus Indica and Japonica, what what are the key differences? You just mentioned that they've shifted from shattering to non-shattering, but what what are some of the other key things that that have changed? Um, the, the the size of the grain has also changed. It's it's increased in size and uh, yeah, Orisa sativa. But one of the biggest things is 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 the productivity, the yield. Uh, there there was a fourfold increase in the amount of grain you can harvest uh, from uh, rice as a type of domesticated rice, Asian rice. And, and does that involve just a shift, an evolutionary shift away from allocation to roots and shoots and toward reproductive parts? Is that yeah? So 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 that's right. So in the in the evolution of domesticated cereal crop, there's a, there's a change in like you said, the vegetative versus reproductive allocation has shifted. Um, uh, a lot of the energy is mobilized in forming the grain. The other thing that helps in yield is that um, the ability of the plant to uh, grow in dense stands has increased. So, you know, they, they can grow right next to each other and there's no suppression of growth. A, a lot of plants will suppress growth of neighbors to, to give itself room. But in many of the crop species, that uh, regulation of density uh, has just gone out the window. So we can plant them at high density. So what are the, um, I mean, I want to talk about green super rice, but what are the reasons that we most need that now? I mean, in terms of water use, in terms of pesticides, in terms of space, in terms of climate change, what are the major threats that we face? In, in terms of food security issues, and by the way, one of the reasons I also study the evolution of crops, I, I'm an evolutionary biologist. I want to understand evolution, but you know, it's not escaped our attention that if we know more about how this crop has evolved, it might be able to help breeders. The situation we are in the world right now is with the population expanding. Just, just look at population growth, nothing else. Um, in order to meet the food requirements of the world by 2050, every year we need to increase harvest by 1%. Uh, I'm sorry, we need to do it at uh, 2%. Right now, we're doing it at 1%, right? 1% is amazing, right? That That's every technology we've done, Every, you know, new varieties, new technologies. And every year for the last, you know, few decades, we've been increasing yields by 1%. We need to double that to meet the target of, of feeding the world. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is, of course, climate change has both climate change and changing, the changing land use around the world has created more pressure uh, on plants to be able to survive in more stressful environments, uh, either marginal environments, because now we have to start thinking about planting uh, near nearer shorelines where there's higher salt content, or we need to be able to cope with uh, changing water patterns and drought patterns. I'm not a breeder, but uh, if you ask breeders what the number one issue they would like to address for food security, it would be water. Water is the one thing that everybody's worried about, that we would run the ability of the plants to tap into uh, fresh water, especially with the possibility of drought uh, in the future because of changing rainfall patterns, is the one thing that many uh, breeders um, have focused their attention. That sounds like the kind of thing that, that might conflict with this um, idea of increasing yields, right? So. It, 
if if they're increasing yields by allocating less to roots, then it seems like they're going to be less resistant to periods of drought. So how, how, do, how do you how do you break that trade off? So, so th- this is the one that's fascinating. And again, as evolutionary biologists, this is one of the things that we can help in looking at crop. It's all about trade offs. Um, and we're locked into these trade offs that in order to make better progress or have a, a next level shift in breeding, we have to figure out a way to break these trade offs. But can we? Or is it locked in by evolution that you cannot hope to increase your allocation to the reproductive organs if you also want deeper roots to, you know, get water from lower and lower tables? Maybe that's not possible. You know, there's a trade-off between uh, water use and loss and photosynthesis. This is a massive trade-off that's providing a problem with with trying, you know, if, if we could figure out a way to maximize photosynthesis, because... The, the, the amount, uh, the efficiency of photosynthesis is actually really, really small. It's great because we've covered the planet with plants and that's why, you know, life is possible. But the actual efficiency is very small from the physics point of view. But because there's a trade-off to, uh, with water use, uh, with the ability to prevent water from escaping, for example. So there's all of these, these evolutionary trade-offs that one of the things that, that I, it's not the area I work on. But, but I think you've hit upon a, kind of a central question here where if we are to make really huge progress, we have to understand the evolution of these trade-offs and if it's possible to break them. But, but I don't know. I mean, you know, is it? Are, are there evolutionary trade-offs where you really can't separate them? Yeah, three and a half billion years of evolution on Earth. I mean, <laughs> there are going to be challenges, right? There's a lot of trade-offs that have not been broken naturally. So um, time will tell. Can, one, one more probe of this area, Michael, um, of this 1% annual gain over the last X number of years for, for rice yields, how much of that has come through this sort of increased water use efficiency or other ways to deal with water problems? Is that where most of it has come or is it through other channels that it's not going to matter. I, I think it's it's it, it's all around everything. It's it's trying to develop new varieties for better water, for just just higher yield, and it's also you know from changing practices, right? Applying more modern technology, you know, modern land use uh, to that. Those are all together, I think, uh, impacting the overall yield. I actually don't know what component of it is. For example, just genetics versus better agricultural practices. Well, well, let's get into something that I know you know a lot about, uh, genomes, rice genomes. Tell us about the Rice Genomes Project and, you know, the sort of major things that are happening now, some of the genes that are foci of selection. I want to spend some time on this phenomic uh, process, the technologies that are used to describe all the phenotypic variation. That's pretty amazing um, as a selfish or or sort of a jealous animal-focused person who could never do those kinds of things. It's really neat stuff. But what's going on with the, the Rice Genomes Project? Well, so, so you know, there's several things going on right now. Um, one of the things that I think is is, is, is is to get really good reference genomes for many of the major varieties of rice as well as the wild species. What, what a friend, a uh, colleague of mine, uh, Rod Wing, calls platinum level uh, sequences. That is, you know... <laughs> Not just gold, but platinum. Huh? Yeah, telomere to telomere, complete high-quality sequences we can all trust. One of the things that's happened in plant genomics is this 
understanding now that huge parts of the genome are actually not shared between individuals. That, so there's this idea of what's called the pan-genome, where if you take the genomes of different individuals in a population, there's a huge part of it that's shared by everybody, but there are pieces here that this one has it, but this one doesn't, and this one. And these are not small chunks. These are like megabase-sized chunks. And that's why having platinum-level reference genome assemblies could possibly help us understand the extent to which this is happening. The other that's happening right now is a desire to do some level of sequencing to all of the known rice varieties. So the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines, which is the repository for um, the seed from around the world for rice, has about 120 to 130,000 seed varieties in its, in its, in its data bank. Uh, several years ago, an international collaboration sequenced 3,000 of those. Okay, uh, and now uh, from those 3,000 people trying to get phenotype information so we can try to do mapping of the gene sequence to the phenotype. Um, right now, there is a desire to do 10,000. Uh, and also individual countries have a desire to do large samples from their country. So, for example, I was just on a call yesterday or the other day to the Philippines where we were discussing sequencing of 1,000 traditional rice varieties from the Philippines and, and getting phenotype information from that. So there's this large-scale effort to try to exploit the amount of variation that's locked into the seed banks that's carried by the international community um, to see if that can help us in breeding efforts. The other thing is, you mentioned phenomics, is we need to start to get a lot of phenotypic information. Uh, and, and, you know, it used to be if we did phenotypes for a few hundred uh, varieties, that was that was good. You know, we could do a lot with that. But now it's getting to the point where we need thousands and thousands. Um, there's a lot of robotics that has come into play uh, in some of the big uh, centers. They're developing robotic fields where there are cameras overhead that do that that take um, a lot of these measurements. But also, there's been a lot of use of drones of unmanned aerial vehicles uh, for phenotyping. So um, I think we're beginning to see a switch uh, in phenotyping efforts from kind of the artisanal <laughs> phenotyping of individuals to using drones, for example, to, yeah, with, with, with good GPS um, to, to really get where we're going. Yeah. So, so the idea in the end is to have massive amounts of phenotypic data that you can then associate with the genomic level variation and try to trace the sort of genotype to phenotype map. With the genomic level data. And, and, and now if you're dealing with thousands and thousands, then maybe we can start to get at some genes of smaller and smaller effect, right? And for example, in human populations, in, in, in genetic disease mapping, they have tens of thousands of individuals because they, they're trying to get at genes of smaller and smaller effect. And of course, in humans, they get to walk around and so their environment is not controlled. At least in plants, you can grow them in the same field and it's in a semi-controlled environment. Well, let me ask about that because it feels like one sort of super interesting but also possibly uh, interfering process would be plasticity, right? So if you grow a bunch of plants together in one place in one time, then you're going to get a set of phenotypes. But if you do them somewhere else under slightly different conditions or radically different conditions, you're going to get a different set of phenotypes. So how, how much do, do you and others in this field worry about plasticity as a, as a process? We do, and there's a difference also in scale. So for individual labs like myself, we're kind of stuck with maybe one or two fields. Maybe we'll replicate it over two years in different fields within the same area. But for breeders actually, and for um, the big agricultural companies, they act, when they do these phenotyping, they do it internationally in multiple fields. 
So, you know, if, if, if what Syngenta or Cortiva, which is the big maize breeder, um, will, will be testing their varieties, they have 10 sites around the world where they get data from over multiple years. In the Philippines, in, in the International Rice Research Institute, they have stations in Africa, South America, and all over Asia, so that when they're doing phenotyping, they're trying to do as much coverage as they can in multiple year efforts. So, so they've got that covered. As you can tell, it's, it's long-term and it's tedious. Yeah. But, but it also seems like, I mean, it's really interesting from a kind of fundamental biological perspective too, right? Because you'd like to choose traits that are plastic in the appropriate way across a range of environments, right? Well, yeah. So, so this is the interesting thing that one of the things that's happened in, in domestication is we've reduced plasticity, right? Because what, what farmers want, what you want is stability. You don't want the thing to be changing. So they've, they've, they've selected, it probably unintentionally and consciously, for stability. But as we know, plasticity has its uses in adaptation. Uh, and, and there's actually also this debate in the community, uh, well, the breeding community, which I peripherally observe, on the extent to which you want to also try to think about plasticity as something to put in. But the problem is when you put in plasticity, it's usually at the, with a loss of some yield, even in good years. So again, you're trying to maximize yield, trying to make it stable over as many environments as you can. But then when the really bad environment comes, now you're pleading for plasticity for the plant and you haven't bred it into it. Yeah. Well, and plasticity is not something that, you know, you don't get plasticity for everything. You can get plasticity for water use, but not plasticity for photosynthetic rate, but on and on and on. Yeah, it's non-trivial. So you you know one of the one of the things that obviously well maybe not obviously but but has been powerful in these systems is this sort of identification of these alleles that could be integrated into you know different pre-existing strains um, in principle. But I'm wondering if there are sort of desirable traits that people want to control, and maybe water use is one of them, where you know the genes that could be useful are not obvious, or there's so much pleiotropy involved or there's so many you know genes of small effect what are those things how are those hurdles being dealt with well so i don't think we really know that well so for example drought is the uh, you know uh, plants that are resistant to drought is an important one that we've talked about and the suspicion is this is going to be a polygenic issue we're not going to find one or two genes that are important for drought response and and, and in fact for decades of trying we still don't have a gene that can help for drought response. So nutrient efficiency, nutrient uptake efficiency is another thing. That actually maybe a few genes might be very helpful there that helps in, in sequestering and transporting nutrients. There's a lot of effort to try to get better and better photosynthesis. But again, this might be a, a polygenic uh, issue. There's not one magical gene that you can you can put in to fix. The ones where it's been a lot of success is in disease resistance. That's why you see a lot of breeding for disease resistance, because there they know I put in this gene, I'm going to get resistance for, you know, this particular pathogen. So that's where putting in single genes has been important. The one big um, success recently in, in rice is the submergence tolerance gene, which is a fantastic gene that was so, so one of the problems in Asia was that if you get a monsoon rain or a typhoon come through, you can get floods that will get your field buried underwater for, for weeks, right? And that would kill your crop. It was figured out in the 50s that there was a, a, a line, a, a traditional variety 
that survived flooding for weeks. And they found a gene. It was a gene called sub one. They put the gene into rice. And lo and behold, you flood the field, put it underwater for a week, 10 days, drain it, plants are fine and continue to grow while the other plants are dead. And that actually has been put into strains and actually has been released so that the, this is now in the field. That's one of the really good examples of here's one gene found in one uh, traditional variety that now is helping against flood damage uh, for plants. So it's going to be a mix, but some of the harder ones like drought, I think it's going to be it's going to be polygenic. Yeah. What what are people, I mean, if, if a lot of these are, are important traits, what are people thinking to do with this issue? I mean, if everything is polygenic, is there some philosophy about the next step, sort of dealing with this emergence problem? Where, where, where the breeding community seems to be going is the use of what's called genomic selection, right? If we, if we had a, a huge field trial where we had genetic information across the entire genome and how the phenotype is, so that we could assign to every nucleotide, every polymorphism, how it contributes to a particular trait across the entire genome. Uh, we can then develop a model that says, if you have these combination of polymorphisms in the genome, you're going to get a better drought-resistant plant. And, and that's what it, it's called genomic selection. It's, it's the same idea that uh, human geneticists have for assigning a risk score to you for cancer risk or for whatever risk based on your full genome profile. But here, the instead of a, a cancer risk score or a heart disease risk score, we're looking at drought resistance or, or some other aspect. So modern breeding is a lot of these large trials. It's a lot of using um, computational techniques, including artificial intelligence now, to try to see what are combinations of mutations that are important, and then let's select for those. So this, this last 10 minutes has, has touched on an area that's of a lot of interest to, to me and Marty. Um, and I think we've been talking about sort of both, both sides of this. One is, I mean, the major question is, you know, how, how do you associate genomes with, with phenotypes? And if you want to shift phenotypes, what do you tinker with at the, at the genetic level? And, and we've, you know, you've been talking about examples of sort of single gene effects that map very strongly onto phenotypes, and then also these these sort of polygenic things that map in a more statistical way onto onto phenotypes. And, and one of the sort of things that Marty and I think a lot about are the intermediate layers in organisms. So you know, genetic regulatory networks, physiological endocrine networks, the sorts of physiological layers that are this sort of complex filter between what's happening at lower levels and, and at the phenotype. And it strikes me that like you know, it would be a strong predictive tool if one understood the physiology of those networks really strongly as a, as a and sort of understand the form of that filter between those two things. So is there a lot of work going on at those intermediate levels? Yes, there is. But my sense is we're not talking to each other. <laughs> it's just, just too complicated. So in, in, maybe in the land-grant institutions, there's more opportunity to interact. But um, I think there's a real desire to, to do that. But, you know, the physiologists and the genomicists are now just beginning to talk to each other and try to understand what each other's problems are. So, if, for example, I collaborate with a physiologist at the International Rice Research Institute who's a drought stress physiologist. And so we, you know, we work with her. So she tells us things to help us understand how plants really deal with water. 
but the, the interface between the two is still fairly weak, I think. Um, but I think there are many who understand this as an important possible pairing of areas to look at. I don't know why it hasn't happened. We, we've been so busy doing our own things, right? I've been so busy sequencing genomes. We've, we've done some physiology, but they're kind of like not very sophisticated. And we've just collaborated with physiologists. So the ability to collaborate, I think, with physiologists like that uh, or cellular biologists or people like that would be, I think, a good next step in plant biology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, music to my ears. And, and I, I sort of, I, I had hints that you were aligned in this way because you said at the end of your Nature Reviews Genetics Review paper, uh, the most urgent and challenging task facing the community now is to associate this natural sequence variation with phenotypes under varied ecosystems. And in some ways that, that sentence encapsulates <laughs> this last 20 minutes of our, as, of our as conversation. As if you wrote that, yeah. Art. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, um, just we have one more quick question that we'll ask you, Michael. But before we go there, let's let's just sort of nail drive home this green super rice thing because when I was reading the paper, I guess my initial impression is that this is one thing that we're aspiring to. But now it sounds like there's a whole bunch of one green. Yeah, I mean, literally this little rice that wears a cape and you know flies around the world, making everybody happy. But um, it's not it's not really that. Then green super rice is some conglomerate of different rices. Right. It, well, I guess it depends on who you ask. I, I, I think of it as we need uh, different varieties of rice with these characteristics, but are adapted to their different local environments. Uh, I think the, the idea now of having just one variety that everybody's going to grow everywhere, uh, I sense that, that those days are falling behind us that the understanding is that Bangladesh is different from the Philippines, is going to be different from uh, Nigeria, okay? So you want rice with these characteristics, but it's also somehow adapted to those environments. There are certain groups, I, I think, for example, in, uh, in China, they do want a few varieties that they can grow everywhere uh, in, 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 in China. But if you look at how, at least the International Rice Research Institute thinks about breeding right now. It really is, let's try to figure out how to breed for local air environments uh, and how those could be important for them. Well, let's um, maybe start wrapping it up a little bit. Um, I had actually a question that circles way back just to your personal experience with some of these uh, different strains of, of crops. And I'm wondering about rice. So have you eaten undomesticated rice and what what is it like? I have not. I have not. I've been trying to. Well, the problem is too is you can't. Well, we can bring it into the, the country. It it's it's hard to import. It's considered a noxious weed, so it has to go under quarantine when you grow it. So we have it. it it's hard to bring in. We we have a, my lab has, is a designated quarantine area for it, but we don't have a lot of it. Not enough to harvest and eat <laughs> uh, ourselves. And, and and do you know like how how hard is it to Harvest the stuff and process it in a way that makes it edible. It, it, it's not. It, it it looks. It looks like it, uh, seeing the seed. It looks just like rice, except it's a little more elongated and a little thinner than it looks like rice. I bet you could haul it. Uh, so it wouldn't be a total shock to to eat a bowl of this. Stuff. No, it wouldn't okay. be a total shock. It would be nice to know what the flavor would be. Is it nutty? Yeah, that's what is I was it? wondering. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what about, about other, other? Yeah, other yeah, crops. other domesticated crops. Un undomesticated. The ancestors of domesticated crops. Have you tried any of those? Well, not the ancestors, but I've tried some wild palm fruits. 
they're not they're not very good. Not very good. <laughs> they're kind of they're kind of astringent and hard. And, I sense you know. this might be a theme, sort of relative to crops not very good. That might be the general rule, right? <laughs> Except that you know, for our ancestors that have said we're going to work on this, means that they saw something in it, right? That we're not we're not seeing. Maybe tastes have changed over 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 millennia. It could have been the best of many poor alternatives too, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, that's one thing. And, and going way back to something you said in the beginning, what about teosinte? Did were people eating teosinte? Have you eaten teosinte? Oh, I know. I haven't. I, I actually haven't eaten teosinte. It, that that's harder. Their their cases are harder. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to process that. Um, I don't know. Uh, some of the like uh, other scientists, like Jeff Ross, Ibarra, Davis, or John Dobley, Wisconsin may have eaten teosinte. Okay. All right. Well, hey, Michael, thank you. This has been absolutely wonderful. I've learned a ton, had a good time. That's a really good conversation. Um, before we wrap up, the last question that we ask is really just what would you like to say that we haven't asked you? Anything else on any topic? Well, one of the things just, you know, the reason I study domesticated crop species, as I said, uh, is I think it tells us something about how evolution works. And I really believe that. But the other thing that also drives many of us in what we do, at least in, in my community, is we think that by looking at how crops have evolved in the past, it may help us face some of the challenges we will face in the future, especially in food security. So I think this is a clear example by which the lessons of the evolutionary past can help us face the future better. Um, and that's certainly the framework that I and others uh, are living in. We're doing this because we want to learn about evolution, but we also think that we can help uh, facing the future. Excellent. Hey, it, there's nothing better than ending on an inspiring note. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Michael. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank yeah. you. This was this was this was actually really fun. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. On the next episode, we talk to Toby Kears about Arbuscular Mycorrhizal Fungi. The underground networks that they form are intimately connected with most plant life on the planet. And the trade of carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus among these organisms comprises one of the most important but least understood eco-evolutionary interactions on Earth. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thanks also to R.B. Smith for writing the script, and Brad Van Paraden, Jordan Greer, Natasha Damright, and Kyle Smith for helping to produce this episode. Keating Shimmery produces our awesome cover art. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.